Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, creator and host of The Last Symptom. So nice to have you back with me again this week. It's raining here where I am, so that might be that might get picked up on the old microphone. But I think it just adds to the ambiance, don't you? Got a lot of interesting things to talk about this week. In fact, this might turn out to be a bookmark episode, meaning that this might be uh, an episode that you'll want to bookmark and come back to from time to time because we're going to do a review of many of the laws and principles of emotional health as we've talked about them over the past six years. And so this might be a really nice episode moving forward for you to come back to and review just to refresh your memory on some of these things. And then scattered throughout the program, we're going to discuss some other things as well, other interesting things. But we have to do the disclaimer and the music that opens the show. So let's get that out of the way. Don't go away. I'll be right back. I'm Brian Barnett. I'm just a regular guy. I'm not a doctor. I have no legal license in any field of psychology. But I did live a large part of my life with borderline personality disorder unknowingly. And I really did rid myself of the disorder completely and permanently. Through that, I've become an expert on issues involving emotional health. I accept no responsibility whatsoever for your feelings, thoughts, behaviors, decisions, and actions, including your decision to watch or listen to this show at all. But I do hope you might benefit yourself from the insights I share. Let me tell you something that I learned this week about women's eggs. This is true. This is not a joke. Something I learned very interesting about women's eggs. All the eggs a woman will ever carry, get this, form in her ovaries while she is a four-month-old fetus in the womb of her mother. Do you know what that means? It means that our cellular life, cellular life, as an egg, begins in the womb of our grandmothers. That's right. Each of us spent five months in our grandmother's womb. And she, in turn, formed in the womb of her grandmother. That is... uh, Something that has blown my mind this week, and I've just, I can't get, I can't stop thinking about what that means about life as I know it. Proverbs 24.10 says that if you become discouraged in the day of distress, your strength will be meager. Have you ever been discouraged? Can you attest to the truthfulness of Proverbs 24.10? Has it ever been hard to get out of bed? Have you ever put things off? Have you ever moped around due to discouragement? Well, we're going to talk about something today that is even worse than discouragement. That's a little bit later on in the program. Will Smith and family is the family that, uh, the gift that keeps on giving, aren't they? And I, I probably shouldn't say it like that because I don't revel in the suffering of anybody. It's just a tragedy what that family 
puts themselves through, what they have done to themselves, what they put themselves through, be very hard, very difficult for them to find emotional health because uh, I think a lot of the things that they cling to and value too much are things that prevent what is necessary for them to get healthy as a family, as individuals first and then, of course, as a family. This week I read a quote by Will Smith. He says his heart was shattered when his son, Jaden, asked to be emancipated at age 15 over their film After Earth, which was a critical failure. Will Smith says he lost his trust in my leadership. Uh, I don't know about you, but everything I ever see about Will Smith and his personal life tells me that he is not a leader. He's not a leader. But he wants to think of himself as a leader, according to this. Um, and which is such a, what a delusion. What a delusion to look at yourself as one thing when the facts don't point to you being that thing and uh, you just being waist-deep in denial. His son, by the way, they pictured, they posted a picture of his son currently. Uh, there's a young man that doesn't look happy. So he's going to carry on all the disorder and the unhealth and the unhealthy attitudes that his family passed down to him. Last week, it were in the previous episode, I made a statement that there are not different types of people. And I just wanted to expand on that a little bit. I didn't want to be misunderstood what I meant about that. Clearly, there are different types of people in the sense that we have different cultures, we have different skin colors, we have different lifestyles, we have different values, and, and these sorts of things. Clearly, in that sense, there are different types of people. What I was referring to is in anything that matters as far as how human beings operate, uh, there are not different types of people. When we're talking about, when you hear people talking about borderline personality disorder people, for example, they're not a distinct class of people. They're just normal people with unhealthy attitudes. So it's just normal people thinking in ways that are not healthful, not healthy. So in everything that matters as far as the way human beings operate, the way he, what human beings are, uh, there is no different types of people. Somebody, in, for example, in um, Iraq... A human being on in Iraq, in every way that matters, is exactly no different whatsoever than me right here in Appalachia. The only difference that matters is the our the way we look at things, our attitudes, our thinking. But as far as me being a a, a distinct class of creature from that person in Iraq, that's not true. And so it only comes down to there's only two distinct types of human being. There's males and there's females. And I realize that's not a uh, popular statement to make this day and age, but uh, you kids out there who think differently, you're idiots. And um, that's all I got to say about that. There are male and there are female. But other than that, people are people. So in everything that matters, there are not different types of people. 
And it's important to keep that in mind so that you're not uh, the nature of what human beings are. Uh, you have an accurate understanding of that. I think actually what I said in the last episode is that for my work here, the only thing that matters is healthy and unhealthy. There are healthy people and there are unhealthy people, but they're all just people. So when I'm talking to somebody in Nigeria, do I have to factor into the fact that they are living in Nigeria, they're from Nigeria, in order to figure out what emotional issues they're dealing with and why? No, only thing I have to know is that they're a person. That's the only thing I have to know. So then the way that I listen to and talk to and in, uh, provide insights for a person in Nigeria is exactly the same as if I'm uh, talking to somebody right here in my neighborhood and listening to them, helping them identify the underlying issues that they're dealing with and correcting them. It makes no difference. There's only healthy people and unhealthy people in my line of work. But as far as like cultures and stuff like that go, of course, those are to be celebrated. You know, I, I really revel and celebrate my own culture here in Appalachia, and uh, I'm very proud of it and everything. But it doesn't make me a different type of human being than you are. So it's important to, to keep that in mind. What should you do when somebody continues to test your boundaries? Let's say you're married to somebody, you're in a relationship with somebody, or uh, somebody that you have to interact with frequently. Do you remember the BCCCs of emotional health? We are also going to re-mention those here in a little bit. The BCCCs of emotional health stand for boundaries, communication, consequences, conditions. And I've told you in the past that the boundary part is actually the... the uh, the least important part of boundaries. In fact, when I talk to people, I'm always speaking about consequences and conditions. Very rarely about boundaries. Boundary is just, this is a line, don't cross it. And people do that all the time. But people also fail to uh, enact a consequence and then fail to enact conditions once somebody does cross a boundary. So you can see, boundary is the least important part of the whole thing most important part are the conditions and the consequences. But let's say that somebody continues to test boundaries. <clears throat> How should you... Well, let's talk about, for example, for a second, the communication part of the BCCCs. I've told you that when you're going from a situation where you have not been holding people accountable for ignoring boundaries, and now you're trying to adopt that healthy lifestyle into your way of life, that communication is important. In other words, it's not fair to decide, for example, that, well, um, I have a boundary that you can't call me cracker, all right, just as an example. That's my boundary. I don't want to be called cracker, and I won't tolerate that. And just coming to that conclusion in my mind, but in the meantime, for the past 10 years, I've been in a group of friends, and they all call me cracker. And they're all used to call me cracker, and they're not used to me pushing back on that at all. Would it be fair of me to just in my mind, in, in secret, in private, decide, you know, I don't like being called that. And so there's my boundary. And if they do that, here's the consequence. And then what's going to happen? 
they don't know. I haven't communicated that with them. So now I go and I'm around them. And of course they do it. And then suddenly there's a consequence that they, and they don't understand what's going on. So communication is important in that type of a scenario so that you can communicate to them. Listen, guys, it's all been fun and games here for the past 10 years. You call me cracker. But, you know, it really bothers me. And um, so I'm not going to allow myself to be spoken to that way anymore. And then communicate, you know, and, it, it, you know, I'd like you guys to respect my wishes. But if it continues, then what do you do? You communicate what the consequences will be. I won't hang around you guys anymore if you keep calling me cracker. <laughs> so then in that case, you can see how communication is very important. Now, let's talk about, let's go back to this, when somebody continues to ignore boundaries or to con con continues to test boundaries. This is a situation where you've communicated. L uh, let's use the same type of scenario. I don't want to be spoken to in this way. I don't like it. I'm not going to tolerate it anymore. So you can disagree with me. You can get angry with me, but you have to show respect. You have to continue to show me respect when you discuss anything with me. And you've had that discussion, and you've talked about consequences. Like, I will not tolerate that. There will be a consequence for you doing that. At that point, is it necessary every time you interact with that person to communicate to them again that there will be consequences that you don't want to tolerate you will not tolerate that remind them of the boundary and these sorts of things the answer is no in fact by doing that you're shooting yourself in the foot you're giving them you're actually it's kind of an enabling thing if you continue to communicate thereafter or once you've had the discussion and the thing is established to continue communicating that every single interaction that you have with them. Imagine me hanging out with my friends. I've told them, you know, I, I, guys, I really don't like being called that. You know, I've, I've let it go for the past 10 years, but I, I really don't like it. And uh, they all realize, okay, he's serious about this. Um, there is no need for me from that day on to continue having that discussion with them. So now let's go back to the relationship with your husband, your wife, whoever, your mother, you've had the discussion. It might go like this. I won't tolerate being spoken to in a disrespectful way. That might be the conversation. You see that the person understands what you're saying. You have established this boundary. You've communicated potential consequences for it. Now, after that, with every discussion that you have with your mother, for example, do you have to remind her of the, the boundary and of the consequences and all these things? No. What's more effective is when the boundary is tested, the consequence simply happens. I was talking to somebody here recently. This person was having an interaction with this person's spouse. This person said, if you continue talking to me this way, I will do such and such. I will make such and such a decision for myself. The spouse continued to ignore that. This person continued speaking to this individual in a way that had already been established that this person would not tolerate. And at that point, the person said, 
I'm going to enact this consequence if you don't stop. And, of course, the person didn't stop. So finally the person then did carry through with the consequence. Here's the problem with that. The unhealthy person, the unhealthy partner, knows, knew that they were testing and violating a boundary already. The person who's trying to do things in a healthy way, by having that conversation again, by communicating that again, was allowing the unhealthy person to know that they're already violating the boundary. The unhealthy person then continues violating the boundary. Consequence is stated. The person decides they're all right with that consequence. That person, the unhealthy person, has time to figure out for that person's self whether or not they mind that consequence and how they will handle that, that consequence. So this does not in any way mimic real life. <laughs> Let me tell you what I mean. I walk into a grocery store and I grab, there's a woman in the grocery store, I don't know her, she's been over looking at a, a bottle of spaghetti sauce. And I just walk up behind her and I grab her butt. What happens in real life? In real life, the consequence is swift and it happens immediately, doesn't it? The lady does not turn around and say, listen, that's a boundary that I live with, and the consequence of it is that I'm now going to smack you. Does she? If she did do that, think about how ineffective that would be on me, the smack. Now consider the, the real world, the way consequences play out in real life. I walk in, I grab the lady's butt, she turns around and knocks the, the snot out of me. Knocks my face into next week. It happens so fast. Do you think, moving forward, that I'm going to think twice before I just reach out and grab some girl's butt that I don't know in the grocery store? You better believe it. In most cases in real life, when we cross a boundary, we suffer an immediate consequence. And it is not communicated beforehand because we are, we, it's our responsibility already to understand that if we do a thing, so a consequence like that will happen. So I don't know if I'm making a lot of sense this week. My brain's not working today. But what I'm simply pointing out is that there's a difference between uh, communication being required in a situation where boundaries need to be established but in most situations, boundaries are already established. And if they're not, it's because somebody has been uh, shielded from consequences for too long. Too lo somebody is shielding that person from consequences. Otherwise, they would know. So you folks living in unhealthy families or being in unhealthy relationships and those sorts of things, you have that discussion. You, you, you do the communication part of the, the BCCCs. But once a thing is established, you do not have to keep talking about it. What should happen instead is that a consequence simply has to happen without any warning. And I'm not talking about physical abuse, by the way. When I use that example in the, the woman in the grocery store, I'm not suggesting that that should be one of your consequences. I'm just saying in real life, that would be the consequence. That and legal action and probably I'd get arrested and for assault and all sorts of things. 
So what I'm saying is that your consequences, which, remember, have to be decisions you make for yourself. They can't involve some, uh, some decision that you make for the other person. They have to be within your power. And what that means is that co- the consequence has to be something, a decision that you can make for yourself. Like, I'm not going now to, um, you know, the, that va- those vacation plans we had? I'm not going on that vacation with you. I know that I said I would, but that was conditional on you continuing to treat me with respect. And you haven't been doing that, so th- now the vacation is off. I'm not going. You can go. I'm not going. How about being stuck in a car? Somebody's driving you nuts. You're driving. Should you say, if you've already established that you will not tolerate being spoken to in a certain way or having arguments in the car because it's dangerous, should you uh, then in the car warn the person, I'm going to pull over. I'm going to pull over and get out. No, you shouldn't. The consequence should simply happen. That is the most effective consequence that can happen. Because the person will cross the bend. The person will learn. The person will learn. They will only cross that boundary so many times. Now, the next time, what I'm saying is that you should simply pull the car over and get out. Rather than explain yourself or anything like that, it has already been established you will not be spoken to that way. There will be a consequence. So... If a person ignores that consequence, then you should just pull the car over, take the keys, get out, take a walk. They will learn. And when they don't when they don't have any warning that the consequence that they've tiptoed up too close to the boundary and now a consequence is going to happen, believe me, they will be more careful about approaching that boundary in the future. If this occurs enough, the effect will be that the unhealthy person will begin treading more carefully and making a greater effort to stay away from the edge of that boundary. <clears throat> I'll tell you, the rain sounds so nice out there, but I don't know whether you can hear it or not. It's so loud. It's actually affecting my ability to hear myself, so I feel almost like I'm yelling into the microphone. Let's uh, get into this discussion about healthy laws and principles. Or the laws and principles of emotional health, as I often refer to them. And the first one is the law of minimal effort. Do you remember what the law of minimal effort says? It says that a person never puts in more effort into a thing than is required to achieve their true objective. The reason why that's so important is because, for example, if my objective is to just keep you from leaving me, if that's my true objective, then I will only put in enough effort to to accomplish that. I won't actually go on and put in the effort to authentically or truly recover from my emotional disorder if my my true uh, objective is simply to appease you. No, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to authentically recover from an emotional disorder. Why would I do that if my true effort is, or my true objective is simply to appease you? What I'll do instead is I'll put in enough effort to appease you and then stop there. The law of minimal effort. What does it say? It says that as human beings, it is impossible for us to put in more effort 
than is required to achieve our true objective. Once our true objective is achieved, we stop there. All right, the next one is the law of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority, which is a more detailed examination of simply free will. But it explains how each of us lives uh, with a bubble around us where all of our authority, inherent rights, responsibility, and authority exist. And outside of that circle around us, we have none. But basically, it's free will. I can do whatever I want to do, and nobody can stop me from trying to do it. I think of, um, for example, in a relationship, you know, say you've been married for 50 years to somebody, and while it's unlikely that after 50 years a woman would just say, you know, I don't want to be your wife no more, uh, there's nothing stopping her from doing it. The only thing, that's another important thing about the law of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority. The only person stopping us from doing a thing is us at all times. You may say, well, there's a law that says I shouldn't do that. Yes, but nobody can stop you from trying to disobey the law. So what it comes down to is you yourself are the one stopping you from doing a thing. Nobody else. You're also the person deciding to do a thing. Nobody else. And that segues very nicely into the next law. It's the law of self-determination. That's the first time I've ever given it a name. Do you know what the law of self-determination says? It says that people do what people want to do. People do what they want to do. Sounds like the most obvious statement in the whole world, but it's more profound if you think about it a little bit. The law of self-determination. People do what they want to do. Now think about what this means. It means that if I tell you that I want to lose 30 pounds, but a year goes by and I haven't lost 30 pounds, did I really want to lose 30 pounds? I didn't really want to lose 30 pounds. I wanted to do something else more, which was probably sit around and eat donuts. That's what I wanted to do more. The law of self-determination says that if I really wanted to lose 30 pounds, then I would have. You see how important it is then to keep that in mind. If somebody's not doing a thing, it's because they don't want to do it. They may come up with all sorts of excuses. You might come up with all sorts of excuses for why you're not doing a thing, while at the same time stating how much you want to do a thing. But if you really wanted to do it, you would be doing it. The law of self-determination, people do what they want to do. Do you really want to get healthy or do you just want to tell people you want to get healthy? Do you really want to get healthy or do you just want people to think that you're the type of person who wants to get healthy? You see, the law of self-determination, you would be getting healthy. Nothing would stop you from getting healthy if you really wanted to get healthy. It reminds me of this mattress. I might have told this story before. Uh, My friend Jeff was helping me move. This is years ago. And... I was trying to get this uh, box springs, set of box springs up these stairs. I was moving into a, uh, oh, what do they call it, a duplex. So it's a house that's split right down the middle, and you've got renters on one side and you've got renters on the other side. But it was a two-story house, and I was trying to get this uh, set of box springs for my bed, a queen-size bed, up the stairs, and it wouldn't go. And, man, we kept trying, we kept trying. We could not get it around the corner. And um, Jeff said, you know, I think this is a lost cause. I don't think we can do this. 
Did he really want to get that box spring up there? No, what he wanted to do was help me. So whatever that meant, that that's the only reason he was there. He was just to help me. But he did not truly want to get the box springs up there. He just wanted to help me. So if I were to throw up my hands and say, you know, I don't, it's too much work, then he would be satisfied with that. The box springs would not get upstairs. But the law of self-determination, I wanted those box springs up there. And you know what? I found a way. I went and I got a hammer, and I uh, tapped on that those box springs on the frame of it until the frame I had uh, pulled enough nails and that sort of thing so that the thing then just kind of collapsed. It was malleable. And so then we got it up upstairs, and then I got some screws, and then I put the whole thing back together. But there's a good example of the law of self-determination. People really do what they want to do. Just remind yourself of that. People do what they want to do. Think about this. I have a friend currently. I haven't seen him since like November, last November. I keep inviting him over. Hey, why don't you come, why don't you come down? We'll play cards. Hey, uh, why don't you come over? We'll have a drink, watch a couple movies. He says, you know, I'd love to. I'd love to, but I've got this thing i got to do this weekend. And then some time passes. I invite him again. Hey, why don't you come down? We'll play some cards. Oh, you caught me at a bad time. I've really got to do this other thing. Okay. A few more months pass. I call him up or I send him a message. Hey, why don't you come down this weekend? Oh, you know, I, I've got to be doing this other thing. I, and I tell myself, the law of self-determination, people do what they want to do. If he wanted to be here, he would be here. He doesn't want to be here. And so, you know, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and extend, continue extending invitations over a period of time. But eventually, I will just accept the evidence that he's got other things that are more important to him than coming down and spending time with me. So the law of self-determination, that's a new name that I've given it. I used to just discuss it as people do, do what they want to do, but I thought, you know, it needs a name, and that name is the law of self-determination. Now, what is the difference between a law and a principle? Maybe we should discuss that. A principle is something that you can live by, but you don't have to. It's just that your life would be greatly improved if you did live by the principle. A law, on the other hand, you don't have a choice. With a law, we are all bound to that law, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not. So this law of um, self-determination, you can't escape that. You, that is a natural part of being a human being. If you want to do something, you will do it. Um, on the other hand, if, you don't, if you're not doing a thing, it's because you don't want to do it. Uh, that's, that's a law that we're all dealing with as human beings. The next one, the law of genuine attitude reflection, also a law. What does the law of genuine attitude reflection say? It says that I, my natural behaviors cannot betray my true underlying attitude about any given thing. So think about like parents who say that they love their kids, but the way they treat their kids is uh, contradictory to love. The law of genuine attitude reflection says that the, their attitudes, their true attitudes toward their children um, can be seen in their natural behaviors, their natural dealings with their children. One will not contradict the other. If I think that, uh, well, I've used, uh, I've used this example to death about dynamite. If I think that dynamite 
is if I truly believe that dynamite is dangerous, if that's the true attitude I live with about dynamite, you will not see me walking around juggling it or just tossing it around all willy-nilly because that would be contradictory. It would contradict that attitude, wouldn't it? Instead, what you'll see is you'll see me treating dynamite very gingerly, being very careful with it. Hey, hey, telling you, be careful around that. Then you see that the true attitude that I live with about dynamite is being mirrored perfectly in my behaviors, the way I, the way I manage myself around dynamite. The reason why the law of genuine attitude reflection is so important is because people say lots of things. We tell ourselves lots of things. Will Smith likes to think of himself as a leader. But, you know, when you look at his attitudes, when you look at his behaviors and stuff like that, the, the true nature of his family, the way his wife just walks all over him, the way his kids just walk all over him, uh, you see, his management of that situation contradicts what he says he thinks. He, he, he thinks that he, he wants to think of himself as a leader, but we know that he does not view himself as a leader. If he did, he would be behaving like a leader, and he doesn't. The best he can muster is kind of this artificial uh, display for the world that he is a leader, like right in his movies. He's acting as a leader, but that's not the way he views himself inside of himself for real. Otherwise, that would be shown in the way that he interacts with his family. Okay, the next thing is metonymy. You all remember what metonymy is? That's where we take something, the, the kind of this abstract notion of something with authority, and we personify it. So a good example of that is the White House issued a statement. That's metonymy. The White House can't issue a statement. It's a building. So somebody inside the White House had to issue that statement. The White House could not do it. And you see this all the time. You see it, for example, science says, science says that one of these days we might be able to fly faster than the speed of light. No, science doesn't say that. Science doesn't say anything. There might be some scientist out there who says it, but science is not a, a person. It can't say anything. So that's called metonymy. We've got a bunch of these to get through, so let's uh, pick up the pace a little bit. Entropy. Entropy. We talked about this not too long ago. Entropy is, the, is <clears throat> in the natural world, the natural world's tendency to go from order to disorder. In order for entropy to be halted or reversed, uh, it ha somebody has to be giving a thing constant attention. For example, imagine your house. If you were to just leave your house uh, and abandon it for five years and come back to it, what would you find? You'd find all kinds of problems, wouldn't you? It, you might not even be able to see your house because it might be so overgrown with trees and weeds and vines and, and those sorts of things. That's entropy. The reason why our houses don't end up that way every year is because all year long we're attending to, right? We're attending to our, our homes and um, our small bit of activity around the house year by year keeps entropy 
from happening as fast as it would like to. That's entropy. But I've talked about entropy as far as in your personal life, in society. We see entropy happening. Uh, society is not getting healthier every year. Society is getting sicker every year. And anybody who would argue against that is in denial. Personally, each one of us individually, we have to do maintenance on ourselves. Otherwise, entropy would occur. That's true with uh, our emotional health. It's true with our physical health. It's true with our spiritual health. Uh, it's true in all aspects of life, even my hair. I have to give it attention about once a month or so, uh, give myself a haircut, depending on how short I cut it the time before. <laughs> but uh, that's entropy. It goes for, Everything goes from order to disorder, and we're seeing that in society today. Um, you, when you think about how many people are, how many unhealthy people are there out there compared to healthy people, uh, today there's more unhealthy people than there were probably 200 years ago. Why? Because of entropy. You have families who adopt unhealthy attitudes, pass those unhealthy attitudes to their kids, and then it's kind of passed along that way through the generations. And as the generations multiply and multiply and multiply, what has happened is we've seen much more unhealthy people emerge in society than healthy people. Have you ever heard of the law of the hammer? I don't know if I've ever discussed it in the show. I've discussed it in other aspects of my work. The law of the hammer, and this is something that I have to be careful with, says that uh, for somebody who has a hammer, every solution looks like a nail. So, for example, if you are a, a, a scientist, since we're picking on scientists today, if you're a scientist and you look out at the world and you're trying to come up with solutions for, or the, you're, you're trying to come up with explanations for problems and solutions to problems, then the law of the hammer says that you would be inclined to look at everything through a scientific lens, right? So there's got to be a scientific explanation for every problem. There's got to be a scientific solution. The law of the hammer is dangerous because uh, that's not the way real life works. Just because you know a lot about science does not mean that everything has a scientific explanation, does not mean that every problem has a scientific solution. The reason why I say I have to be careful about that is because my emphasis here in Last Symptom Land is on emotional issues, right? So I do have that tendency that every time I'm looking at the world and its problems to apply what I know about emotional issues, emotional unhealth causes, emotional solutions. So I have to be very careful in this work to not speak out of line, to not speak dogmatically about things that I uh, am, am not an expert on. Right? It, it's tempting for me to go, everything can be traced back to an emotional health explanation. And uh, that's not necessarily true. The law of the hammer Keep that law in mind as you go about your life and make sure that you're not looking at everything and thinking that just because you know a lot about one subject, then that that subject or that topic or that category of thing explains everything and solves everything. We talked about uh, discouragement a little bit earlier. We quoted that scripture from the Bible. 
And I told you that I was going to mention that we were going to mention something today that is even worse than discouragement. It's disillusionment. So that's the next entry in our list of laws and principles of emotional health. Disillusionment is the greatest enemy. Not discouragement, not making mistakes, not failures, not what people might think of us, but disillusionment is the greatest enemy. I've told you many times it's a killer. It pulls the rug right out from underneath of you. It makes you lose faith and trust in everything. And once you've lost faith and trust in everything, then you are unwilling to uh, invest your time and energy and effort into anything. Disillusionment is the greatest enemy. The next entry is suppliers or deniers. Suppliers or deniers. Unhealthy people view everybody as suppliers or deniers of their wants and needs. The next on our list is calm assertive versus passive aggressive communication behavior styles. Calm assertive versus passive aggressive communication behavior styles. Remember, calm assertive communication behavior style is the kryptonite for passive-aggressive communication behavior style. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about all of these laws and principles. I'm just highlighting a few individual ones as we go through them. If you're curious about knowing more about the laws and principles that we mentioned here that we don't go into detail about, then you might want to go back to um, uh, search through the, the bank the bank of uh, episodes of this show, or even better, Enroll in the Last Symptom Fundamentals course over at thelastsymptom.com. That's that two-week intensive fun uh, course, video course, pre-recorded video course, and we discuss almost all of these things in great detail in that course. The next on the list of healthy laws and principles, a lot can happen in a year. A lot can happen in a year. A lot of change happens in a year. A drop in a bucket, let's say you've got a hole in your roof at home, and uh, it's the rainy season. So you put a bucket down on the floor to catch those raindrops, and it's just one raindrop, bloop, bloop. You say, well, that's not a lot of water at all, is it? What happens when you leave and you come back uh, five hours later to that bucket? It is amazing. It is amazing how full of water that bucket is, ain't it? Well, think about that in your life. A lot can happen in a year. The reason why it's important to keep this principle in mind is because if you're discouraged, you don't feel like you're making any progress day by day. It's something you can remind yourself. It's a truth you can remind yourself of to pull yourself up out of discouragement. A lot can happen in a year. I remember uh, being in my, those years, those years of deep gloom uh, in the beginning years of my own recovery, think, feeling like life was had always been like this and life was always going to be like this, just miserable and depressing. And I used to tell myself, a lot can happen in a year. And do you know that the, the day came when I was no longer living in that same apartment, I wasn't working the same job, I wasn't around the same people, my life did change. 
and it all happened relatively quickly. The next entry on our list of laws and principles, determining responsibility versus blaming. They're not the same thing. Determining responsibility has a healthy and constructive purpose, a healthy purpose. It's something you have to do to be healthy, whereas blaming does not. They're not the same thing. When I'm trying to get folks to understand that their parents have such an enormous responsibility in what they're dealing with today, uh, not the parents, but the, the children. A lot of children, grown children, rebel against that because they feel like, well, what's the point in just blaming my parents for things that I can't go back and change? It's not a matter of blaming. It's a matter of, of recognizing and identifying where responsibility lay. Next up on the list, feelings are never good or bad, right or wrong. Next up on the list, we can be held accountable for our thoughts and behaviors. We cannot be held accountable for our feelings. Think about that real hard. We can be held accountable for our thoughts and our behaviors. We cannot be held accountable for our feelings. By the way, attitudes are just thoughts. Perspectives are thoughts. So can we be held accountable for our attitudes? If we're living with unhealthy attitudes, yes, we can be. But we cannot be held accountable for our feelings. Next up on the list is capacity versus ability. Capacity versus ability. Remember, I have the capacity to play the banjo, but I don't have the ability because I've never learned. That's important because if something is beyond my capacity, for example... Uh, if uh, you expect me to fly like Superman around my neighborhood, that's an unreasonable expectation because it's beyond my... I couldn't do that even if I wanted to. But could I run a marathon around my neighborhood? Yes, I could. I have that ability. I have that capacity. So then that would be a reasonable expectation, possibly. <laughs> um you know, whether I want to do it or not is a whole other issue. The law of enabling. What does the law of enabling say? The law of enabling says that we are always enabling something. You are always enabling or supporting something. There's never any time where we're not enabling or supporting other people or ourselves. The job is to always enable or support the right things and to never enable or support the wrong things in any way. Now, here's one that I wanted to spend a little bit more time on today. Well, Barley, my dog, is behind me chewing on a bone. That's what that noise is, so uh, pardon, pardon the distraction. I don't want to take it from him because then he'll just find something else to do. The Law of Distinctions. This is the one I want to spend a little bit more time on. The law of distinctions is important. The law of distinction says that just because things may have a connection does not mean that they're the same thing. You see, people equate things as being the same when they're not the same. We do this when we're unhealthy, for example, when we view the things we do as being exactly the same as what we are, who we are. 
So, for example, if I make a mistake, do I hate simply the mistake that I made if I'm unhealthy? No, I hate myself because of the mistake. You see, it's, it's not making a distinction. It's not making a distinction and separating those things the way they're supposed to be separated so that I can hate the one and still love the other. How about terms like, he's a narcissist. That is not distinguishing the person from the emotional disorder that the person is living with. It's equating them as being exactly the same thing, as being indistinguishable. When you say that somebody is a narcissist. This goes back to that conversation about there not being different type, different categories of human beings walking around. There are no such thing as narcissist people. Like they were born that way. There's no such thing. There's just people with healthy or unhealthy attitudes. A narcissist is simply a person living with unhealthy attitudes. That's it. So it is not proper to call people a narcissist or a borderline. This is not proper because it does not properly distinguish the disorder that they're dealing with from what they are. Another example of this is like uh, people who claim to be religious being the same as the Bible. So, for example, if you have an aversion to religious people, you then looking at the Bible critically as if the Bible and these people are the are equivalent. Like because because these people are are hypocrites, and because these people uh, have all these bad qualities, well then the Bible is that too, you see. It violates, it is not living in harmony with the law of distinctions. Lots of people can claim to be religious. That they are not the same as the Bible. It's not even the same as having religious beliefs in general, right? So that's something to keep in mind. How about a gay person? A gay person, again, this is important to keep in mind that there are no such things as different categories of people walking around. There's only people. So when you say, when you look at a person and you view them as a distinct creature, like a distinct human being, like they, they are different than many other human beings, then you're viewing the person as being exactly the same as their sexual desires. And they're not. It's simply a person with sexual desires, with sexual leanings. How about a doctor? You, you view a person as a doctor, right? We call people, what, what is he? He's a doctor. Fails to distinguish that the person's job is different than who and what they are. You see... Doctor describes a superficial temporary state. But in our society, many people don't view doctors that way, do they? They view somebody that once they become a doctor, that's what they are inherently. Is it important to make a distinction? It absolutely is. Every day, all the time. Doctor describes a temporary superficial state, not an inherent permanent reality. What is the permanent 
inherent reality or the inherent permanent reality. He's a person. He's a, that is to say, he's a human being. And he's a man or it's a person and it's a woman. Those are inherent permanent realities, not temporary superficial states. How about science being the same as scientists? As if the two are indistinguishable and inseparable. I just saw a video this week of uh, a politician in front of Congress, sitting in front of Congress, saying, uh, talking about science shows us this, science says this, science has proven this, and uh, he was speaking to the Congress in, in using these terms that stood out to me because I said, I know what he's doing. I know what he's doing. It occurred to me during this discussion that science can't show us anything. Science can't say anything. Remember metonymy? It's like saying that carpentry went out and built a house. How did that house get there? Well, carpentry built it. Really? Yes, carpentry built that house. You, you, have you noticed that we don't talk like that when we're talking about things like carpentry or artistry, right? Hey, who did this painting? Artistry did that painting. Artistry did it. Oh, wow, that's amazing. We, we don't talk like that, do we? When we're talking about things like artistry, carpentry, linguistics. Right? How do, who's going to be interpreting for me today? Linguistics will be. Linguistics will be coming to the hospital and interpreting for you today. We're translating this book for you. Who? Linguistics. We, we don't talk like that, do we? So why do you suppose that scientists do talk that way about science? Why do you think scientists and people out there who are not scientists, but that's their religion, why do you think they would talk in that way about science? Science says, science has proven, right? Is that different than who built this house? Carpentry did. Carpentry built that house. Think about why they might do that, why they might refer to science instead of scientists. Can science do anything on its own? No, it can't. It's simply a field of study and a discipline. It's scientists who research, come to conclusions, do things, and explain things. But notice that in all of these areas, carpentry, artistry, in all these areas, by not making these distinction, distinctions, by equating two things as being the same when they are not, they have a connection, but they're not the same thing. What is accomplished is that the true nature of the thing becomes hidden. So again, I'll ask you the question, why do scientists and people who view science as their religion, instead of saying a scientist explained this thing or a scientist discovered this week, they say science Science itself said, and science itself discovered a thing. Why do they talk like that? Why do elites talk about science and scientists as being indistinguishable from each other? Well, I've kind of already alluded to it. 
It's because science is their religion, whether they know it or not, whether they would acknowledge that or not. It's their religion. To talk about science as an abstract, infallible, immaterial force or entity makes it impossible to argue with. You see, only a heathen would dare argue with an all-known immaterial entity. But what about scientists, the people? See, that word paints a much more accurate description of who is claiming a thing or of how a conclusion is being reached, through whom a, uh, a conclusion is being reached. A scientist is mortal and fallible. So do you see that in order to attempt to distance themselves from any notions of fallibility, to make it impossible for anybody to argue to the contrary or to do their own thinking, these people always refer to science rather than to scientists. Science says this, science discovered, science shows us. Anthony Fauci famously said, I am the science. Why would he talk that way? Because he views himself and wants everybody else to view him as simply a vessel through which this abstract, infallible, immaterial force or entity operates. People make mistakes and can be in error. Abstract, infallible, immaterial forces cannot be. So is it important to make distinctions? Yes, it is. All the time, every day, all day, in big ways and small. Remember, even the people that you're going to for help, therapists and psychologists and those sorts of things, uh, don't allow them to speak to you as though science says research has concluded, those sorts of things. If they can't do their own thinking and accept responsibility for the conclusions they themselves have reached based on what they have studied and read, then you probably don't want a person like that trying to help you become healthy because uh, they're, not, they're not practicing things that re are required themselves in order to be and maintain emotional health. Next up on our list, shame is the only emotion that has no constructive purpose whatsoever when applied to people or our own selves. So it does have a constructive purpose when we're looking at things, not when we're applying it to people. What do I mean by that? Well, what, the, what is shame? What is the message in the feeling of shame. The feeling is trying to tell you that a thing is worthless, that is, is devoid of value. And so things we do can be devoid of value, but we cannot be devoid of value. So it's important then to make sure that when you are applying shame to something, when you're viewing something, is that shameful or not, that you're making that distinction. Am I feeling this way toward the thing I've done, or am I feeling this way toward myself? Am I feeling bad about myself? Remember, shame is just any time you feel bad about yourself. It is appropriate to feel bad about things we do, say, think, etc. It is not appropriate 
to feel shame about we ourselves or the things we feel. The BCCs of emotional health, boundaries, communication, consequences, conditions. Next up on the list, what separates good people from bad people? You see, good people do bad things, and bad people do good things. So what determines if a person is good or bad must be based on something other than merely what people do or don't do. Next up on our list of healthy laws and principles, the law of genuine motivation. Do you know what the law of genuine motivation says? It says that it is impossible for us as human beings to tap into or maintain genuine motivation toward any effort or objective that we perceive as being impossible. So if we consciously, subconsciously, or unconsciously perceive a thing as being impossible, then it is impossible impossible for us to tap into and certainly maintain genuine motivation toward that objective. We first have to believe it's possible. That's the law of genuine motivation. Now that is not to be confused with the law of motivating force. So we just got done talking about the law of genuine motivation. What's the law of motivating force? The law of motivating force says that the motivating force behind a thing is usually what determines if a thing is healthy or unhealthy, not the thing itself. You remember we talked about the law of motivating force when we talked about the lady who goes to the gym. Two women, same age, same everything. They both go to the gym and they spend the same amount of time at the gym every day. Is that healthy or is that unhealthy? Well, what does the law of motivating force say? It says we have to understand what their motives are for going to the gym in order to understand if that behavior is healthy or not. The one lady is going because she loves herself. She wants to take care of herself. This is the only body she's going to have. She, so she, and she loves life. So she wants to be as healthy as she can so that she can enjoy it to the full for as long as she can. The other woman believes that her value is based on how good she looks and what people think of her. If lots of people think she's gorgeous and beautiful and everything, then that adds that gives her a sense of superficial and fleeting value, but that's the only way she can experience it. Therefore, she's going to the gym because she's being motivated for those reasons. It's the law of motivating force. What is the motivating force behind a behavior? That's more important than the behavior itself. Um, next up on our list, failure to fulfill a responsibility leaves behind a vacuum, a debt. Failure to fulfill a responsibility leaves behind a vacuum. And what do you know about nature and vacuums? It's that nature abhors a vacuum. We don't want to leave vacuums. How do you bring things back into balance? How do you fill a vacuum when a responsibility has not been lived up to? How, does, how do things come back into balance? Consequences and conditions. So 
Failing in a responsibility is not the end of the world because the consequences and conditions can bring it back into balance. It can fill that vacuum. Next up on our list, relationships or contracts. Relationships or contracts. Now, that applies to all relationships. Even a guy on the park bench at, at the local park who I decided to get in, decide to get into a conversation with. The moment I decide to do that, I'm, start, I'm signing a contract. I'm getting into a relationship with the person. There are different degrees of relationships, but we're talking about all relationships are a contract. The blind faith amnesia effect, you know what that is? That's where you read, for example, in the news, you're reading the newspaper, and you're an electrician, and there's an article there about something in dealing with uh, that field of work. And as you're reading it, you're you're thinking to yourself, this reporter has no idea what he's talking about. He does not understand electricity. The whole article is bunk. And then you turn the newspaper page, and you go right back to believing that those reporters know that what you're reading in their newspaper is factual, that you can trust it. When you just read an article proving to you that they don't know what they're talking about. The blind faith amnesia effect. If you watch television news, they get things wrong all the time. Every time I turn on, I don't watch television news. It's not the way I get my news. Uh, But every time I do turn it on, or I'm flipping through and I see something, they're stating something that is just absolutely factually incorrect. Why, why do they even have, still have a business? Like, why are there still even news channels? Because lots of people are watching them. And what are those people doing? They're victims of the blind faith amnesia effect. They see the reporters on there say something that is just absolutely factually wrong, reveals how much the reporter does not understand the topic he's talking about or she's talking about. But they keep watching, and once they switch to a different topic, they forget And they go right back to fully trusting the information coming off their TV screen. Uh, Next up on our list, healthy forgiveness can only happen when conditions are met. Healthy forgiveness in the sense of um, extending forgiveness to somebody else. Remember, that's that's something for somebody else, not for you can only happen when that person has met conditions. Why? Because voluntarily meeting conditions is what? What is required for healthy forgiveness? The person who committed the wrong has to demonstrate, not just express, but demonstrate genuine remorse. What happens when somebody voluntarily meets conditions required for forgiveness. That is a demonstration of remorse. What's the most important condition for extending forgiveness to somebody? That they first demonstrate genuine remorse. So see, you're doing them a favor by expecting this of them and holding them to this, this, this condition. I want to extend forgiveness to you, but you have to meet certain conditions. The person does that voluntarily, and what have they done? They've demonstrated remorse. Now they qualify. Healthfully, I should say. They healthfully qualify. You have adhered to the healthy laws and principles. 
you have now contributed to a healthy outcome. You now maintain your emotional health. Uh, Next up on the list is extending forgiveness versus letting go of resentment. I just kind of alluded to that. When people in general speak about forgiveness, they don't understand they're talking about two entirely different things. They're using one word to refer to two distinct, completely different things. One is extending forgiveness to another person. The other is letting go of resentment. Uh, Even the Bible uses the same word to refer to both of these things. Extending forgiveness to somebody, that is to say, to, to consider a debt paid is what it is. And then the other thing is letting go of resentment. One can happen without the other. They don't have to, both things do not have to happen. So for example, I can extend forgiveness to you in the sense that I'm viewing a debt paid and I can cling to resentment at the same time. Or on the other hand, I can let go of resentment but not consider a debt paid. So I'm not extending forgiveness to you for you, but I'm letting go of any resentment that I any resentful thoughts that I have about it. So they're not the same thing. And when I talk about forgiveness, I'm talking about extending forgiveness to somebody else, viewing a debt paid. When I'm talking about the other form of forgiveness, I will not use the term forgiveness. I call that letting go of resentment. And that's for clarity. For clarity, because remember that many things in recovery require a very subtle adjustment in thought. And so in order for me to help others make these very subtle adjustments to their thinking, it is very, very important for me to make distinctions, right? The whole conversation keeps coming back to distinctions, making distinctions. Next up on our list, forgiveness versus acceptance. So think about this, forgiveness versus acceptance versus letting go of resentment. Do you understand all three things clearly? Can you distinguish between them clearly? Can you understand when, uh, in which circumstances which one applies? Might be something to think about or enroll in the Last Symptom Fundamentals course. And finally, getting off the merry-go-round. Getting off the merry-go-round. I'm not going to go into detail about that, but I'll just leave it there with you guys. And if there are any of these, again, that you'd like more information on, be sure to, to look through the bank of episodes of The Last Symptom Podcast. Join us over there on our online community, thelastsymptom.locals.com, or you can download the locals.com app from the App Store and just search for The Last Symptom by Brian Barnett within. We do live streams there within the group on Mondays. That's your opportunity to interact with me in the chat Uh, get me to talk about the things that you're curious about that you want answers to and those sorts of things. Um, I'm even happy to answer personal questions like, how did I feel about this? How did I get over this hump? Uh, Did I ever feel like this during my recovery? What were some of the obstacles that I dealt with? And things like that. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the weekend coming right up. I hope you guys do something nice for yourselves and take care of yourselves. Be good to yourselves. This is Brian Barnett signing off. I'll, I'll see you guys in the next episode. All right. Take care.